welcome once again to another episode of the Lore Entertainment Podcast. I'm Andrew Southwick. Today's show, we're joined by Lore CEO Marcus Pittman. Marcus, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, we got some interesting stuff to talk about because at least at the time of this production, I think this will get out pretty quickly here, but we just had a Republican debate on Fox News. We had then Donald Trump, who was not at that debate, but sat down with Tucker, did a pre-recorded interview with him. That ran on X, formerly known as Twitter. We'll, uh, we'll get into that and whether or not cable is dead. Uh, and and uh, does art influence culture more than politics? That'll be part of the conversation as well. So we got a lot to, to cover today. But Marcus, before we get there, you posted on Facebook a little bit ago. You had an opportunity to... Uh, to pitch lore to some established VC and so on. And, and that was a pretty exciting post. I wonder if you could give us a little update just uh, on lore's growth, maybe that pitch and how that and how the information you got there, the uh, how it will help lore going forward. Yeah, no, I think uh, it was a really interesting uh, discussion because I think when you start pitching, you, you pitch uh, anybody who's done uh, start raising capital for a startup you tend to find your circles and then you invest within those circles. And, uh, and, and so with this, this guy, uh, who I was pitching to is an established VC guy. He, uh, invested in Google early on. So he's pretty, um, pretty well established in the tech, in the tech world, startups, tech world. And now VC I, is venture capital, right? Yeah, venture capital. So these are okay. guys, basically the angel guys who just give money for good ideas and so that they can become actual companies and stuff like that. And so, I mean, we're farther along than that at this point, but um, at one point we were there. And uh, but anyway, so uh, speaking to this guy who uh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say he's uh, a Christian. He's definitely not an evangelical. Uh, might be more on the conservative side. Uh, so basically, just hearing our pitch you know with just really fresh ears in, in turn in a completely different world like he's not part of the um like the new alt tech movement we see now where you like mm -hmm. public square red balloon that sort of thing like he's not part of that just just you know silicon valley guy um and yeah. he he loved it he loved lore um he's uh, we're gonna we're gonna be working a little bit more to basically redo our deck and stuff so it appeals more to like the silicon valley types uh yeah. but he he was one of the first guys like that actually you know that actually knows what he's doing and says this, this is a billion dollar company um so wow. like hearing that was like wow <laughs> <laughs> you know because you pitch it to people all the time you pitch it i mean christians are the absolute worst when it, it, it's just true <laughs> when it comes to venture capital and investing in companies and media and um and and so, so it's just been real. It's been a really hard grind, slow, um, yeah. and whatnot. So to hear that from someone who's established, and you know, I pulled the pitch book on him. So, so, <laughs> um, uh, so uh, you know, I, I have his credentials. He's not, you know, a scam or anything like that. He's a real deal. And yeah, uh, so it's really encouraging to see that. And I, I think hopefully the next steps is is to come out. I'm gonna fly out and just meet him in person and. Uh, knock him, uh, uh, just try to tie him down for an hour and uh, just go through our whole deck and get it VC ready at that level, um, which is a completely different level than we've been at. Um, huh. So, yeah, so that's really exciting news. You know, you know, one of the things is with lawyers, like you say, well, it seems small. The funding seems slow, but everything we're doing, actually, let me tell the, this story. Um, 
Sure. Um, uh, my my pastor's son, Nate Wilson, uh, wrote in his book. Uh, I forget the name of the book exactly, but he write he writes about how uh, this time where him and his father were. Uh, his father would make him go outside and rake rocks every single day. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 uh, he, he, he would get mad. Eventually after like a week or so, he got really mad. And he said, dad, I'm so sick of raking rocks. Why are we raking rocks? And his dad said, well, because that's that we have a rake and we have rocks and that's what the Lord has given us to build our house right now. And so that's what we're going to do. And so, um, he was raking the foundation, um, for the house. And then slowly over time, they did eventually build that entire house as God gave them the supplies to do it. So with Laura, I feel like that's what we're doing. We're raking rocks. We were taking the money we've been given. We're building something and we're step by step. And then um, investors see that. Investors see our growth. They see the user growth. And uh, that's been really exciting to see. Um, so, you know, we, we tend to think really tiny. Um, and uh, but But on the grander scale, we're actually doing really well. Um, so, um, in the long term, uh, one of the, one of the things you mentioned in your post, you said, uh, that the VC, I don't know, rep donor investor, um, that he said, Lore was like a one in a 300,000 or something company that came along. Yeah. When I read that, I wasn't sure if that was good or one bad. I'm assuming it was good. Yeah. One in 300. Cause they take pitches, you know, most VCs, they take maybe 10 pitches a day. Mm hmm Right. And then um, they only invest. So they hear about 300 a month, uh, but they only they only invest in maybe one company a month. Hmm. Right. So when you when a VC says you're one in 300, it means you're one of the companies that's worth actually spending some time with getting to know and stuff like that. So that's that's big. That was like I was like, wow, that's awesome. Because we, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we built this. We've been doing this for three years, but you have but to hear it from someone completely not in the typical circles was really encouraging and what we needed. And I think that's going to be like that was kind of like one of those breakthrough moments. Um, you know, he you know he reworked our deck already um, hmm. uh, in the sense of like now like Lore is you know one of our value props, one of our main value props. We're putting up front. Is like you know, Lore is the only streaming platform that lets you spend unlimited money per month. Um, that's a massive benefit for um, uh, investors, filmmakers, mm. and uh, and it's a benefit for the consumer because because they can actually don't they don't have to worry about um, us just arbitrarily raising the prices um, for no reason whatsoever as often as Netflix or Disney does. Because uh, they can they can donate um, to funding projects and movies and TV shows, so that actually increases the monthly subscription overall, without us doing it. Um, you know. So let, let, let me ask you a couple uh, questions, just for you know people who are not in movie production business and, and platform startup business and so on. What is a deck? So people understand what that is, and. You know, I think of a deck of cards, so yeah. it'll be, but, and then also when you say, Hey, you can spend <laughs> to a consumer, your knee jerk reaction to hear you can spend as much money as you want. And that's your benefit to you is like, well, wait a minute, I'd like to not spend money, but, um, how does that, like, what does that mean? Uh, particularly and when an investor sees, you know, there's not a limit to w what can be spent, what can be invested, so on and so forth. How does, how does that look good 
on the business side, the viability side, I think you answered it a little bit in saying that that will help to keep monthly prices more uh, more, more consistent. But uh, start with the deck and then that value that you see in not having a limit of spending. Yeah, so first the deck, for, for those that aren't unaware, the deck is basically a 10-page um, PowerPoint presentation that goes through the problem solution of your company. Um, but it's done in a way that appeals to uh, investors. Um, so, so that's sort of uh, the thing. And we've gone through, and I don't even know how many decks we've gone through since we've started this, because things change and you always update it and constantly, and you you start, you get better. You know, after three years of doing this, I'm really good at pitching. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I can do it in five minutes. Um, and and so and so, um, that's everything from beginning to end. Five about five minutes. Um, but, 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 so that's what the deck is. It's just a 10 piece slide. I, I, uh, that gives the, the, the goal of the slide is just to get people interested, um, to have a further conversation or at most agree to meet in person. Like that's, that's your goal. Like, so that'd be kind of similar. Like when we get, uh, when we get mailers in our mailbox for the new business in town or something like that, even though it's one postcard, it's a similar thing. Here's, here's why this is good and why you should be interested. Yeah. Yeah, but more, more, more on a financial end. Um, and sure. Then, and then, the, and then the other que- the question you asked was about um, how it helps the customer that they can spend as much money as they want. Yeah. Um, one is because the customer is the one funding content on our platform, right? So the, they're the ones that's actually building this platform as a whole. But it also helps them in an, because uh, price increases with Netflix and Disney right now are very punitive. They're punishing the customer. Like the price increases aren't providing a benefit uh, for, the, for the customer. Well, uh, so well, one is they're getting rid of password sharing, right? That's mm-hmm. a punishment for the customer. That's not helping the customer by getting rid of password sharing. And I would say it's one of the most amazing things that streaming communities did that really built out what a streaming community, what, 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 what the streaming industry was. Yeah. Um, they basically... Uh, <clears throat> by the free market, legalized uh, piracy, <laughs> right? They kind of <laughs> said, no, it's totally okay on our platforms. And that was a big deal because they were competing with net. They were competing with, uh, you know, like BitTorrent and Napster. Really, that was their main competition. At the well, time. Netflix has had whole social media advertisements bragging about password sharing. Yeah, HBO had an Oscars joke about it where they put the actual account and password up on the at the oscars for you to go watch i I think it was like the like some like the finale of some show oh the game of thrones or whatever it was on at the same time as the oscars so one of the oscars joke was here's a password go watch it (laughs) right so and it was a real working password and account they disabled it after 24 hours but the point was that they were very accepting of that. Now they're not. Now you can't do that Netflix. And so, so again, that's a punitive punishment. Um, and another punitive punishment is when they, when Netflix says, or Disney, what Disney's doing is we're, Disney is saying, we're increasing the cost of monthly subscription by 25% um, this year. Um, so you don't have a choice in that. They're just doing it. They're just, they're just um, by fiat. That- They're increasing the the cost and reducing the amount of entertainment that you get for those dollars. Right. That. So and they're and and not and not insignificantly so. 
Yeah, this is why this is why Lore is really valuable because everything's independent and and you know one of the values of a streaming platform like Lore is we we don't own the content the filmmakers do. Um, mm -hmm. We're very very passionate about that actually, making sure that the filmmakers own their stories. Um, and one of the benefits to that is when that is the case uh, and it's purely independent, uh, we don't have to pay. <clears throat> um, for licensing fees split between six production companies to stream one piece of content. But when you see HBO and they're, they're getting rid of all this content, even though it's really good content, it's really because there's too many, there's too many hands on it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and they have to pay a penny for every stream to six or seven different people. Um, because there's all these production companies and, you know, all these, uh, just lawyers and all this stuff. That's just created made the value of content so expensive and overinflated. Um, but with us, um, the filmmaker is is really the only one um, that that's getting paid for streaming. Um, so so uh, and really really paid for funding. Um, and and so like that's a real value to us because we don't have to worry about that sort of overinflated thing. But but like you said, uh, HBO. Oh, it's now Max. Matt, isn't that sad? I, can we just men mention that like it's not HBO anymore? That just yeah, that really was weird. That was weird. <laughs> I mean, I like, I do like the idea of anymore. multiple. No What's that? There's no cable brands anymore. No, like they've all been sucked up. And Adam Conover talked about this. It was a really good clip. He used to do this show called Adam Ruins Everything on True TV, and he was saying like he was saying that True TV was a profitable cable company, hmm. and then they basically sucked it into Max. And now it's an unprofitable content, because right? So it's like they're they're getting rid of these basically micro niche cable channels, um, yeah. and that were making money, um, and 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 they're just sucking everything up. And you know this is another reason why Laura's going to do well because we're not Netflix. We're just and that's a good that's a good topic segue into let's look at a little bit of the of of debate aftermath. Now what we're going to talk about here is comparing the viewership of the Fox News GOP debate, which was exclusive in more ways than one. And then, of course, Donald Trump did a sit-down, a pre-recorded sit-down with Tucker Carlson that, that broadcast at the same time on X, formerly known as Twitter. And I'll, I'll disclaim it in this way, that we're not talking in this conversation, the point is not who do you support. We're talking about what was more effective in terms of a media platform and where people are going and what in the the rate of return in terms of engagement, so on and so forth. I do think it's important to, to add this context as well. Fox, just before the, like a few hours before the debate started, put out a memo threatening uh, legal action if any political commentators, talk shows, et cetera, used more than three minutes, video or audio, of the debate that they were going to broadcast. <laughs> so... And I'm like, this that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, even if you even if you were trying now, and I'll say this because you mentioned everything being sucked up into Max and so on and so forth. I just had a conversation with John Speed, and, and he'll be back on it in another episode this week. But we talked about the vertical integration of all these platforms, basically, and you're getting three companies emerging as the owners, Amazon, Disney, and Netflix, and what and what that means. Well, this I think the cable, traditional cable as we've known it, and I'll, we'll include satellite in that, it 
is are trying to do that as well. And I think that's what Fox was trying to do was to force everybody to Fox. And not only that, but force everybody to Fox's narrative of that after the fact and their breakdown. And, and I think that's, I think there are larger reasons for that, which is another conversation. But at the same time, you had on Twitter, uh, Tucker Carlson's pre-recorded interview with Donald Trump. And as of this production right now, it's got over, it, it had over 170 million views. And here again, I don't know how many of those views are, it, it scrolled by, so it counted a view. I don't know how they count views, so I want to be careful with that. But, and in, 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 in America, the U.S. itself, which it's going to be Americans who vote, there are only about 20, 25 million Twitter users. So a lot of that's global. It could be some other things. But nonetheless, it, it does show that there is a, a seismic shift. And I think the vertical integration shows as well. That is, all these companies buying up things, making exclusive bottlenecks, so you have to go to them. I think that's actually more reflective of the fact that consumers are going, are finding the content other places. And unless they are forced onto that platform, they may very well not use it. Marcus, your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, the, one, Fox is thinking like old people when they think that they can limit people to th like a certain time. Like that's their, yeah. the, first off, there's fair use laws that absolutely reject that completely. Um, as long <laughs> as you're doing commentary, you can, you can do it as much as you want. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's you know i mean there's massive legal precedent for that through youtube right youtube reactions yep. um so so there <laughs> whoever decided that is probably 70 years old or more like, well fox's <laughs> fox's average audience now on their cable channel their average viewer is i want to say 62 or 63 and the and their average um their average online consumers in their mid 50s yeah they got the boomer con market locked up um, <laughs> you know it's uh so 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 it's a it's a dying market um it's it's concerning um which which to be honest is probably the same market as uh pure flicks and great american country which is concerning <laughs> um you know that's a that's a dying market that's not going to be around a generation from now um you know that's one of the things jason farley always says is lore is making content that your kids can pass down to their grandkids, um, right? Like that's because we're we're reaching a younger audience, um, and and that and we're with stories that they can pass on. So it's a multi generational sort of company. But with like you know Fox and all those other companies, um, they're making content for older people. That's their base. Um, so it's it's really a limited game there. Um, so, but also I just just you know just speaking on this. Uh, no, nobody 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 younger is watching cable television anymore um we don't have we have youtube tv um but i don't like i don't consider youtube tv cable television because i just record whatever i want we fast forward through the commercials we'll watch something if there is something coming on live we'll watch something else until there's enough time to skip past the commercials <laughs> um uh, uh you know it's so so you know we don't like you know that that's uh, you know we're uh you know about 40 years old so and we're not doing it um, that's so, true my my kids are, are my oldest is uh, going to be a junior in high school next year but 
we a couple of years ago was the first time that they have any memory of watching something on an actual standard uh, cable where the programs were scheduled. You didn't have a choice and you had to sit through commercials and it wasn't on demand and you couldn't binge watch and all that stuff. They saw it as kind of a novelty. And so they kind of liked it for the novelty, but they see particularly television entertainment in reverse than the way, than the way we would, because we have the, we have the base of cable and then on demand. And so we, we see it that way. And, and, you know, we remember when, if something was on, that's what was on. We had to turn it to channel three to play video games, right? Exactly. Yep. Like we're the last generation that that remembers having to do that. Um, yeah. And and so, you know, I remember that with my Nintendo. So so television has just shifted so far in our generation, and because we've gone from you know antenna TVs, the RF you know cable adapters to be able to play your video games, um, you know, actually here's a funny story. Um, I worked at Radio Shack for a lo- about four or five years, uh, but when I worked there, uh, the TiVo came out. Um, mm. and, and I remember buying my first TiVo, I came home and my mom was like, just thought I just wasted all this money on this thing and it, <laughs> messed, it messed up her TV. You know, she had to learn how to use the TV again. And then I went, I set it up and, uh, went, went back, went to work again the next day. I come home from work and she goes, I've scheduled all the episodes of Oprah. <laughs> and we never went back as a family, man. We never went after TiVo. Like that I have home. a my first my first TiVo experience. I never had one because I've always been slow. I was slow getting a DVD player because I don't know, I just like vintage stuff and and I'm not like an old well I am a curmudgeon. I'm not necessarily stuck on tradition, but I, it takes me a while to embrace the technology. But anyway, my buddy got a TiVo and we used it because you know we would all get together and watch football after church and this was I was on the West Coast and so it's terrible to watch football on the West coast because half the games are in the morning and you're in church. So anyway, this was a, this was a a, a revolutionary idea. Right. And my first experience watching football on TiVo. And that's why I think it's why I didn't buy one was we were, it was a close game. I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan deal with it. And it was a close game. It was Seahawks Rams. I remember it exactly. And my buddy hit the fast forward and got went straight from the middle of the game to the end of the game. And we all were like, no, no. And, and nobody saw it. And then, but but my buddy did. He saw the final score and he and he saw what happened. And he, and he said, "Don't worry, guys. Don't worry, guys. I'm, I'll go back to where we were. I remember where we were." And I but I did see the ending. And he said, "But I'm not going to tell you." I, I, but I will say this. He said, "I know who won, and I know how we did it." And I'm like, oh, oh. thanks, dude. Anyway, that's my TiVo experience. But, uh, yeah, no. I, I, I mean, just in general, that was one. Of, that was a great early tech company. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, just, I mean, I, I still think their remote and user experience was probably better than anything that's still on the market today. Hmm. Um, I mean, I still remember the boop boop every time, every time you fast forward <laughs> and stuff. Like that was just, it was just. And this is something that still bugs me to this day that TiVo had that nobody else does. I don't know if they have a patent on it. I don't. They probably do. But when you would fast forward really fast and you stop. It would backtrack to right where you hit that button every time. Like, yeah, no, nobody does that. Nobody does it when you fast forward really fast. It, 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 it always is like, yeah, it never hits it. It's almost like your 10 second when you hit the button, it there's another 10 seconds you yeah, miss anyway. Tebow read your mind, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, so, <laughs> so that's just like they had just all these little simple things that really made it. Um, that got people ready really for what we have now with YouTube TV and stuff. 
And, uh, Do you see the well? You must, and maybe maybe you can elaborate a little bit with this with all this migration. I, and I'll say this though, in terms of the the cable TV industry, I think I think the one thing that is keeping cable TV afloat still is live sports, and particularly the NFL, because it's so profitable. All the advertising is so profitable, and I think YouTube, I think YouTube I think TV they're trying to move. I, what's that? YouTube TV has a license for Red Zone now. I know, but I mean, but you, they just, they bought that from DirecTV and it's still like DirecTV's Sunday ticket and all that red zone stuff still didn't kill cable yet. I think they're gonna, because once, if the NFL were, were could have specific streaming options that were more tiered in pricing, like if you could buy one team or one conference as opposed to the whole thing, yeah, right. I think that would be the death knell. But yeah. right now, I mean, the, the commercials, even for regular football games are way, are, are, orders of magnitude more than for a sitcom or for during the news or for primetime or anything. So that's really a boon for, for cable and the live sports is always a problem. And then all the blackout things and the, and the geographic restrictions for viewing, all that stuff's got to be figured out. But the reason those are there is because of money. And I think that's, what's buoying them. Now, having said that we all know it's hemorrhaging and dying and everybody's consuming online and on demand and on Twitter, like we saw with, with uh, Tucker and Trump and, and, um, how do you think that gives Lore an advantage and how are we setting up and how is Lore set up and maybe poised or trying to position to take advantage of this continuing, continually rising tide? Well, the, the advantage is, is, is that we are uh, a, a niche, think of us as a niche cable company. So basically what we have now are we have, we have four major antenna tv channels right like just like abc cbs nbc and fox those are the four broadcast you know fox didn't even come on to the 80s right yeah so, but yep. main main most of television it was three uh abc cbs and nbc and then fox came in the 80s um but also um you you had uh, I think you got the CW I think they count as a broadcast too but nobody nobody watches the CW <laughs> uh, but, but so you had four you had four major channel antenna channels broadcast these are called broadcast channels and those four broadcast channels are uh, really where most of our television came from from most of early television history and then cable TV happened and when cable TV happened what you had was a basically a gold rush for cable TV channels. Um, and I've I've listened to tons of these stories. Um, you can listen to podcast Business Wars. You have ESPN versus Fox um, mm -hmm. Sports. Um, really great breakdown of like early cable and basically how ESPN came from like nothing um, and became just this massive empire. And then Fox Sports, you know, was this massive empire as well. And so, so you see, you basically see, but they, they all, all these cable companies, whether it's Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon or Food Network or MTV or, um, you know, I think there was a car channel one time, you know, like all these, yeah. all these cable channels were, were because we could, the, the, they realized we could go after really niche ideas and find mm -hmm. those people. Just, same way YouTube, there's YouTubers that have 7 million or more subscribers and they just talk about video games. Right, like yeah. they're just like a video game cable channel, um, insanely profitable, insane amount of views. Uh, but it's because the internet allows us to find large, massive niches, uh, niches. How, however you say it. <laughs> um, 
and so and so uh so that's really the um that's really the value for lore is that we can really be basically like a tv channel um for independent conservative filmmakers and mm. that can be insanely profitable um and uh our content is funded by the subscriber so yeah one of the things, and this will be a, well, we, we have to do a little clickbaity thing, but that's okay. One of the things that we've seen in recent days, and particularly in the, the niche and the viral content and so on, of course, you know, Oliver Anthony and the Richmond, North of Richmond and that kind of thing. And, and we saw that explode. I mean, nobody, no one knew who he was. No one had heard of him. He was a dude in the woods playing a dobro by himself three weeks ago, literally right. three weeks ago. And then... It was so impactful that, or so viral, I should say, that the Fox News debate led with a question about his song. Did you see that last night? <laughs> I did not watch the debate. I watched. Yeah, I watched Tucker. Um, okay. But... <laughs> the, the, yeah. The, the first the first question they had was, you know, what do you think about Richmond, North of Richmond, and does that is that a, you know, describing the the sentiment for America and thing, things like that. And so you, you have this, I mean, it was so influential that it made its way onto the GOP debate stage and, and on the Fox News. And of course, everybody and their mother was playing the song and reacting to the song and, and all that kind of thing. And, and then yeah. you have the, the chart success and he's got three songs in the top five and no one's done that forever in a day. And a new song that debuts at number three or number one or wherever the heck it is now. That, and that brings a question, you know, we... There's the the chicken or the the egg argument. Does art imitate life? Does life imitate art? And then of what are those? And then of art, which is more influential? You have art, you have politics, you have you know our our, our cultural, social things, so on and so forth. Yeah. I'm curious to know too because with the well, let, let me back up. Let me say it this way. Right now, in history in America, we have all this censorship, all this seemingly rejection of, of free speech and free ideas. I mentioned that just with, with Fox News limiting how people can analyze their product last night, almost to the point where it's impossible because three minutes doesn't do justice for a two-hour program, right. not to mention with eight different people on it. So, the, but, and so you have people that want to be gatekeepers, but I'm wondering if all this gatekeeping, all the consolidation uh, with, with, with Netflix, Amazon, Disney, news channels, so on and so forth, if all of that has more to do with being the gatekeeper of the information flow and trying to quell things or phenomenas, phenomenons, phenomenae, I don't know the plural of that, phenomenae, of uh, things like an Oliver Anthony, Richmond, North of Richmond, that just explodes and gets into the social conscience and gets people to evaluate where things, where things are, are at. That's terrible grammar, but anyway, where things are in the current moment in history. You mentioned to me uh, off off air that you think that art influences culture more than politics. We would look at our culture right now and say, my gosh, look at all the politics that's happening right now. Everything's politicized. Health is politicized. Climate's politicized. Gender is politicized. Sex is politicized. Entertainment's politicized. Sports is politicized. Medicine is politicized. Everything. There's nothing you can do that doesn't have some kind of political angle to it that gets you canceled or fired or, or, or whatever else. Uh, either on, in the social media sphere or in the public square. Mm -hmm. But then you have the 
Richmond, north of Richmond, Dobro in the woods come out and do more quote unquote business than any of those, at least in a shorter amount of time than any of those other long-term conversations. What's more influential art or politics and why? Yeah. Well, I think I'm going to stand with the quote that says culture is uh, uh, politics is downstream from culture, right? So um, culture is what influences our politics, hundred uh, percent. The weird thing, um, Jason Farley is, is the one that basically called this out for me, but I think mm-hmm. is really important is that conservatives, our art and our entertainment is politics now. Like that's a mm-hmm. weird thing. Um, <laughs> you know, it's almost something like you would think from like ancient Rome, right? Where they're the gladiators fighting and it's all political for the, you know, what, whatever. Um, it's almost like that. But, but yeah, and they're like Tucker Carlson is our Beyonce. I mean, it's weird. That was a weird <laughs> reference. Um, but wow. that, that he, she, he is. Like, he's, he's, he's Taylor Swift. Tucker Carlson can fill stadiums. Trump can fill stadiums. Um, though that's our celebrities on the concert. Like, that's how conservatives do entertainment. Is, mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's awful. <laughs> And, and I love Trump and I, I love Tucker, um, but that's not how you influence culture. And so then you have someone like Oliver Anthony who does a song um, and it's immediately, you know, pushed out there, you know, goes, uh, uh, you know, it, I don't know if he had, I don't know if the gatekeepers were aware of it before it came out or not, but yeah. um, there are some stories that it was astroturfed a little, but it doesn't matter um, because ultimately um it was it it reached the pe- people in a way the ben shapiro show can't mm-hmm. uh, right like nobody is talking about a ben shapiro episode the way they're talking about oliver anthony no one's talking about the blaze uh the way they're talking about oliver anthony that's not an insult to them uh but that's but that's just because uh art is, resonates more than political talk show can ever do um the, the you know um so that's that's that like that's just how it is. I like Oliver Anthony became a number one single uh, on Billboard. His song, mm-hmm. um, you know, overnight. It was let insane. me let me let me bring as I like to do. Let me bring some cold water and a wet blanket to the conversation. Yeah. It's it's my uh, my it's my superpower. Okay. Um. So you mentioned our art, and I say our conservatives. Is politics, and I I I heard a political strategist, a political operative, a conservative political operative, make this point, and I think there's some value to it as to why, for example, conservatives are so bad at actually moving our agenda forward in the country, um, and why our grassroots are not good because we spend all our money on conferences, whereas progressives and liberals spend their money. In the in the in in cities in communities with street leaders and so on and so forth, we on the conservatives like to uh, like to put up or, or, or raise up the Oliver Anthony's of the world and the Tucker Carlson's of the world, and we want to go see them. And our idea is, you know, come and come to this big arena and see them instead. And on one day, instead of being really active. I, I don't want to say evangelist, but you know, an activist, a, a, an effective communicator for 
our point of view, for our perspective, for, for the country, in communities. So, and one of the things that I'm concerned, I'm not concerned about, but it, I raise my eyebrow a little bit because we're in such an era of virtue signaling where it seems like accomplishment if we change our avatar on our Facebook, you know, or change the picture of our Facebook avatar for a few weeks and right. say that, hey, I'm with you. That seems to be, and that's not even just a conservative thing. I think that's a social thing too. But we conservatives, we, we tend to do this quite a bit. But okay, I, yeah, I posted that thing, so I'm with you. So I did my, I did my duty. So the, because there is a disconnect. If, if so many people, like, the, you know, you, I'm sure you've seen the uh, uh, Black Americans respond to Richmond, North of Richmond, you know, the, the whole thing and trying to get the they're whole crying. idea that, well, we've got, what's they're that? Crying watching. They're crying watching it. They're crying watching it. Yet many, I mean, if you got 7 million, 11 million views, all this kind of stuff, if what if the sentiment of that song is true and people are really feeling that way, the the confession or the reality we have to face is that well, we, there's some point where how where that crystallization of what's going on and what we're actually doing on the ground with our vote with our with our influence person to person is different because we still mm-hmm. allowed these leaders and these corporations and all this stuff to go on in our in our culture like we. We, if politics is downstream from culture, then our then our politics is a mirror of where we are, and eat, and where we are we don't like, but we're the ones that that took us to where we are. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Go ahead. You know, I think the 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 the, the point is that the the the, the guys on the street corner um, selling drugs in the inner city are not talking about the about Tucker Carlson. <laughs> they're not talking they're not talking about Ben Shapiro. They're not talking about political talk radio, conservative politics. They are talking about um Oliver Anthony's song. Um they are talking about uh you know whoever uh, Taylor Swift's mm-hmm. hitting 2 billion dollars on her tour and stuff like that. So th- that sort of cultural mainstream they're not they're not they're not having conversations about thomas Sowell's books on economics on the street corner it's just not happening um uh, but art is being used as a means to at least generate those discussions um and and the thing is uh once you uh once you have the artist um you know because art is such a, a a strong uh, motivator, uh, right? Because it goes right for the heart, and we know the like the Bible says, uh, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it, right? Mm-hmm. So once you can get, uh, you know, a leftist artist to convince someone's heart of, I don't know, communism <laughs> with art, um, they're locked in. They're locked in. It doesn't matter the facts you give people. They're locked in, mm. um, and that's what that's what we're seeing right now. And so what we need is art. That does the opposite. That 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 inspires them exactly what Oliver Anthony's song inspires them with freedom and and uh, not being a slave to the government. And these are all things everybody resonates with. Even the inner city communities resonate with this. Um, and, and and I think I think Oliver Anthony's song was the first time someone who was conservative um, reached a lot of people in the inner city. Um, mm-hmm. Probably not since Trump. I think uh, Trump had a lot, a lot of credibility, 
credibility in the inner cities. Um, he was a, he was a, I mean, hip hop artists were huge fans of Trump, did, wrote many songs, you know, um, mm -hmm. many raps have been written um, uh, with Trump as a reference, right? So, yeah. um, so I, there, there was a YouTube video I was watching the other day about all these songs where they talk about Trump and, and hip hop. Um, he's like an icon. Um, until he became president, and then it's like, ah, oh, well, gotta gotta stick with the art, <laughs> right? Um, you know, but I think so. So I don't I don't think there's been someone that's that's reached that level of 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 urban culture um, for conservatives. Not not since Kanye, at least uh, Kanye, probably. Uh, but uh, so 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 uh, you know so 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 it, it does happen. I think you know that's why. I mean, when Kanye starts talking conservative politics he becomes one of the biggest threats in america mm -hmm. because you have a billionaire hip-hop artist uh, is it is it too much of a leap to say that maybe one of the i don't know if it's a goal but i guess in terms of of influence it, it would have to be that one of the goals of of lore is to be one of those voices and to have opportunities for multiple other voices to have those same kinds of impacts and influence uh, in, yeah. in culture yeah absolutely we want our artists to be uh, culture makers, right? Mm -hmm. That's uh, like that's that's the goal. Like, I, like, like th th there's not, there's no such thing as neutral art, right? Like, every art has a viewpoint from the artist. Um, so, so, th so, so, sit there and say, well, we're gonna make art that's not politically motivated is just an outright lie. It's impossible. Um, it's just not true. And so I don't, and, and if it is true, like if you actually make a piece of art that's not politically uh, motivated or, or tell some sort of political viewpoint over your worldview, uh, you just get either just sh random strokes on a canvas hung up at a museum, <laughs> right? Or you get pretty much a pure flicks Hallmark rom-com, right? Uh, yeah. Which is still preaching something. Uh, it's just uh, it's just obvious and inoffensive about it, so it doesn't mm -hmm. matter, right? It doesn't matter. Um, so like those are the two extremes. Uh, but but uh, you know the, you know that's that's the lie of postmodern art is where you can just tell an art that the viewer can just interpret it how they want. That's not true. Like or mm -hmm. the artist can make art without any sort of viewpoint whatsoever. It's just not possible. Um, you know you know if you know if the if the artist you know takes two strokes on a canvas and says this is you know the art um you know they, they, they it was definitely politically motivated it's for you know it's for tax evasion and money laundering right like mm -hmm. they sell they sell it for like a hundred thousand i was i posted it on facebook like they sell it for a hundred thousand dollars um uh and then and then they sell it to a, a politician for a hundred thousand dollars the politician gets it appraised for 20 million and then they sell it to a museum for twenty million, and then they get that sort of tax write-off on the yeah. Or they donate, they donate it for twenty million, right? And then they get the tax write-off. Um, so that, that that's how the art world works. Uh, I, I've spoken to an artist who uh, was a painter for some of the mega galleries. Uh, there's only four of them um, in the country, and it was all money laundering for the Bidens and Clintons. Um, you know, they'll tell it. I don't know if he wants to tell that story, but he should tell us. He should tell that story. Um, but uh, yeah, so he, you know, he quit because um, he didn't want to be a part of that. Um, so, so but that's how postmodern works. And I think for a lot, for you know, we've taken that lie uh, for the purposes of money laundering and tax evasion. We've taken that lie 
as conservatives and embraced it. And instead of, um, I don't know, actually, at, at the very least, you know, uh, you, you know, we we've we said, well, we're not going to invest in art because it has no value and it's all used for money laundering. And as opposed to saying, no, 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 there's a correct form of art that does have value. Uh, we've kind of embraced the postmodern lie, um, even if we don't believe it. But we've decided it's not art is not worth investing in um, because of postmodernism. That's a big mistake. But well, and that follows you know some of the postmodern postmodernist presuppositions that if there is a truth, it's completely relative, so there really isn't one, and that what and you leave everything up to an interpretation which is subject to the mood and the feeling of the moment. You know, and you can you can or at least they're trying to they try to make that seem plausible, which again, you're, you know, I'm saying is not, um, want to get one other question here. We got a couple minutes left. Speaking of lure and lures place in the, in the cultural sphere as it grows and, and potentially, uh, you know, thinking of the potential of that, that, you know, the VC sees in it and that certainly many others are seeing in it for lure consumers. Right now we've got shows that are being funded and some of them are, are, are nearing their funding goals, what show or shows on Lure are, are productions on Lure that are not yet funded but are but are getting there and maybe picking up some momentum? Are you looking at, are you most excited about sharing with our audience? Um, yeah, so a lot, lot of things coming out. Uh, very soon we're going to be launching, uh, I would actually think probably by the time this podcast airs, maybe, maybe soon, uh, we don't have, we got to figure out the exact date, but we're just going to drop um, American Live, hmm. um, which is a comedy special uh, that that we, we're, we're going to drop. And me and Jason will be doing some Twitter spaces on it uh, before it launches and stuff, because it, it is, it's an R-rated comedy special. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see how people respond to it. It's a politically conservative comedy special. Um, and me and Jason think it's important that people know what's happening in the underground comedy clubs in the world. Hmm. Um, whether you agree with the jokes or the comedians or not, um, whether you find some of the jokes offensive or unnecessarily vulgar or not, uh, there is a movement happening across the country in these dark underground cold comedy clubs. Um, and it is incredible. Um, and I think Jason says it best. What's happening in these comedy clubs now a generation from now is going to be the primary topic of movement of the culture. Um, like this is where culture begins. Um, it starts in these little underground clubs where people aren't um, canceled for laughing at a joke. And then if you, and, and you see, so, so this was American Live was done in LA, downtown LA, um, uh, sold out in leftist California, conservative wow. comedy show, just, stomach wrenchingly funny at times um and uh and 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 somehow um we got the rights for it uh so uh i think you know it's it's it, it would have never made it on pure flicks it would have never it probably might even be too edgy for oh it's definitely too edgy for angel it might have been too edgy for you know daily wire or whatever there's so there's really no place for it and we said you know what uh this needs to like Christians need to be aware of this so they can get involved and in, in, like because we need the Christian comedians to really start like now's the time 
now's the time to, you know, not be a church comedian and actually get out there and, and do some uh, comedy that's actually cutting um, and, and damaging to, uh, you know, the, the leftist worldview. And so, so this is, so this is, so that American live, it's, it's, it's really great. Um, it's, it's, it's legitimately funny. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and that, and that, and, uh, to sum it all up, uh, the headliner is, 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 was the Christian in this thing. You know, not everyone there <laughs> is a that? Christian comedian, but the headliner was, and the people came out there to see the Christian it was really cool. There's a scene in there. Uh, this is a whole new, me and Jason will be doing a whole new different conversation on this because we think this is part of a bigger movement of uh, conservative comedy that's happening on a much bigger scale than people are aware of right now. Um, yeah. That's why I want to put this out there. Um, uh, there was only 50%. One of the comedians got up and said, how many of you guys are Christians? Uh, and uh, uh, only about 50% of people clapped. But they were all there for the conservative comedy. And then another guy tells um this is this is one of the key moments i don't i don't know if people think this heavily like deeply about a comedy special but there was a moment where a guy tells a joke that's kind of offensive to christians uh and he's booed hmm. <laughs> and it's one of those mo and, and he retreats from that joke and continue and, and, and i like i was talking to jason about it he was like we need christian hecklers in comedy <laughs> Like, you know, like that, like that, he retreated from that joke and continued on with his set and, and, you know, it, it restrained him. Um, so it's just really, it's really cool. Like you have to look at it, um, as this, the, I've tried like, you have to present it like a documentary of this, this thing that's happening. I think mm -hmm. like if you, if you, if you, if you, if you never really into edgy comedy or anything like that, just like, look, look at what's happening in our culture and look at this art form that is being used right now to really uh, change the course of our country. And, and that's how, you know, I mean, this sold out in downtown LA, right? Yeah. Like you wouldn't think a conservative comedy show where they're joking about um, LGBT and transgender movement and vaccines and COVID jokes, all like all this sort of stuff right in the middle of downtown LA. Um, and uh, yeah. So um, I think uh, people are going to love the show. Um, I think some people are absolutely going to hate it. Um, it. It might be too much for them, um, but it's, it's. I think it's important. It's so. So that is something that's coming out uh, relatively very soon. Um, so I'm excited to see it. I'm excited for you guys to see it. Um, uh, and and I, I I I think it's going to be good for lore. Um, pro like even with outrage, I think it's going to be good for lore, and there's going to be outrage for it. Um, and that's exactly what comedy should do. Um, well, and that if you're getting, if you're, if you're able to, if you're able to take that and turn it into any kind of positive dialogue as well, there can be some value that that can come out of that, like if, if possible. Right? You know, I mean, the left. You know, we have Dave Chappelle is not a conservative. But he does just a little bit of conservative jokes and he becomes as much bigger than he was. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's take a Dave Chappelle. Well, what's happening right now is people are trying to be Dave Chappelle, but for conservatives. Dave Chappelle, like you've got a long ways to go. He's one of the best in the world. <laughs> uh, he is the best. He's the GOAT. But, but what I'm saying is like that kind of comedy where it's, 
attacking a group of people in a in a comical way. What you know, Dave Chappelle does it with race. He makes yeah. you know white people laugh at themselves. He makes black people laugh at themselves. Asians laugh at themselves. You know, that's why it was so dangerous because he was actually disrupting the racial narrative. You know, mm -hmm. when you had, you know, the blind KKK member sketch that he did like that, that's disrupted yeah. critical race theory, right? Like that is very dangerous. You can't get, you know, so, so anyway, so like, so that's how dangerous comedy is. Um, and I, I think in order for comedy to specifically in order for Christians in comedy to succeed, there needs to be a place, there needs to be a venue where they can compete with the world mm. on that on that on that scale um and we can't say um we're not gonna let we're only we're gonna like just silo christian comedians into these safe little church comedy um sort of things you know so we we, we decided you know when we were at this event we were like okay we have to have comedy that's not dry and we like we like we it's had like that that's what's gonna happen and uh because comedians have to fail, like they mm -hmm. have, like you. In order for a comedian to perfect his craft, he has to tell bad jokes that get moans. <laughs> like like you, like he has to. He has to go. Okay, okay. Oh yeah. Okay, you need to step back from that. But if you just read the script beforehand, before they prepare, before they do it, you never get true comedy. You get a recital. Well, I um, think, and that's, I that's think, hard to explain to people. But I think here it is. The we are in, well, we're in a spiritual battle every day. Apostle Paul tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Mm -hmm. We're certainly in a spiritual war and a and a civil war in our country. And what Christians have been able to do, this is a generalization, not all, but Christianity in the West as a thing. We have tried to make the battle safe, sanitized, and secure within our walls. And mm -hmm. You can't fight a safe battle. You have to be on the battlefield. It's not going to be inherently safe. It's not going to be inherently secure. But it can, I think, be make a significant difference. And I think that's what, at least some of what I, I hear you saying, and not only is it some of the reasons why uh, you know, we'll be dropping the, that, that comedy show very soon, but also why we're excited about Lure and its growth and its potential to really impact and influence culture, as we've been talking about on this episode. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm ex I'm excited uh, for it to drop. Uh, insanely nervous for it to drop, and uh, I, I I can't wait uh, to see how people respond, and uh, it, hopefully they believe it's as important as, as we do. Um, and so so they'll be very interesting. And then of course you'll be able to get to decide if you want to see the second episode by funding your loot. So you can buy. There you go. If you want to fund it, you want to fund another episode, but uh, that we're we're going to issue the pilot. Uh, and you guys can check it out. So there you go. Well, as you can see, all kinds of stuff. I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Go ahead. No, I just said don't watch it with your kids. <laughs> it is it is an adult comedy show for when your kids go to bed. So just be very clear about that. We don't want to pull any punches on that. Very good. All right. Well, there you have it. Lots of stuff at Lower coming up. Lots of projects. Lots of uh, exciting things just around the corner. And the way you're going to be able to see them is to subscribe to Lure.tv, L-O-O-R.tv. You see it at the bottom of the screen. Subscribe today. Fund the projects that Hollywood make a difference in this uh, in in our culture. 
in a way that only art and artists and creators can do. Of course, they need the support of the people. That's what we're doing, connecting those two things together at Lure.tv. Subscribe today. Marcus, thank you for being with us today. For Marcus Pittman, I'm Andrew Southwick. This has been the Lure Entertainment Podcast, and we'll see you next time.